You are listening to a sermon by Dr. Richard Caldwell, produced by Walking in Grace. Walking in Grace is a listener-supported ministry. If you'd like to know how you can help these messages reach more people, visit walkingingrace.org media. If you would, please join with me in turning to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. Our focus this morning will be on verses 41 through 46, but we read beginning with verse 34. Matthew chapter 22, and we read beginning with verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. And one of them, a scholar of the law, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And the second is like it, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang the whole law and the prophets. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, Then how does David in the Spirit call him Lord? Saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. Therefore, if David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. Let's go to our God together in prayer and ask his blessing on our time in his word. Our Father in heaven, we thank you this day that we are yours. That our relationship to you is one that is not only explained by Your grace and mercy alone, it is secure, steadfast forever because of the finished work of our Savior, Your Son, the Lord Jesus. You indeed are not only our Redeemer, You are our rock as we just sung about. In the midst of a world that is full of all the chaos and the craziness of sin. You are our perfect security. You are our perfect stability. In Christ and in the Word that You've given to us that is now a lamp to our feet and a light for our pathway, we we know the way in which to walk. By Your Spirit, You are guiding us in that way. And despite our many stumblings and failures, because You have saved us for forever, Your good work goes on in our lives and we are being conformed to the image of Your Son. Your forgiveness that we know in terms of Your wrath is finished and it is complete, and yet the forgiveness we need and receive from You as our Father is daily. And For that we are grateful also, Lord, that You are patient with us and You are faithful to train us. 
disciplining us, scourging us as you do every son whom you receive. For this we are grateful also. We gather together as your people to be edified through the preaching of your word. We've already been edified, Lord, through the reading of it, the hearing of it, the singing of it. Our mutual exhortations to each other are, are needful to us today, Lord. We thank you for all the means that you use in and through the life of your church for the edification and the perseverance of your people. But now we turn our attention to your word and we ask that the preaching of it would be in demonstration of the power of your spirit that you'd be at work in and through it, speaking to our hearts, making application of your word to our hearts, the sword of the spirit to the lives of your people in a way that brings change. We are mindful that some are here with us who don't know you. We ask for your mercy upon them in salvation, that you would grant to them, Lord, new hearts this day. They would look to Jesus for life. But we gather as your people. We need this time. And we ask your blessing upon it in Jesus' name. Amen. The wrong Jesus will never save you. The wrong Jesus will never save you. If you have the wrong Jesus, you are lost. Now, when the Lord saved us, none of us had an exhaustive knowledge of our Savior. We have all grown since the Lord saved us. We know more about our God. We know more about our Savior every day that we're alive, as the Lord grows us in the knowledge of His Word. So it's not the exhaustive knowledge that we had of Jesus that explains Jesus saving us. Jesus saved us through the proclamation of the Gospel. And since that day, we have grown in our knowledge of the One who saved us. But there is a bare minimum that someone must understand about Jesus if it is to be said of them that they have saving faith. No such thing as saving faith where there's not this bare minimum knowledge of Jesus. Because when God saves someone, He makes His Son known to them. They're saved by faith in the Son of God. They have placed their faith in the real Jesus. Jesus is not mythological. He's not the product of some philosophy of men or the imaginations of men. Jesus truly exists. And so the only Jesus who will ever save is the Jesus who truly exists. And God has made that Jesus known on the pages of the Word of God, both Old Testament and New. Early, early in the, in the history of the church, false Christs were already being proclaimed. The Apostle Paul warned about this, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 4, as he reproves the Corinthian congregation for being too open, for being without discernment. He writes, for if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. You put up with false Christ. You put up with a different spirit. You put up with a different gospel. Indicating, of course, that there are false Christ and false gospels and another spirit represented in 
the message being proclaimed and the messengers who proclaim it. So what is that bare minimum knowledge? What must someone know about Jesus to put their faith in Jesus? I think we can boil it down to three categories. First of all, to be saved, one must understand that Jesus was and is the Son of God. You must understand the deity of Christ. God is one. He has eternally, eternally existed in three persons. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And Jesus was and is the eternal Son of God who came to earth, born of a virgin, conceived by the Holy Spirit in Mary's womb, taking to Himself an additional nature, a true human nature, to save us from our sins. Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is Lord. This is the confession of the church. Jesus is Lord. Deny the deity of Christ and you have the wrong Jesus. To be saved, one must understand that Jesus was and is truly human. That Jesus of Nazareth was and is God in human flesh. That the eternal Son, as I said a moment ago, took to Himself an additional nature, a true human nature without sin, in order to save sinful human beings. He became a man to save mankind, all those who put their faith in Him. This is an absolute necessity for saving faith, to know that Jesus is God and to know that Jesus is the Son of David, that He is the Son of Man, that He is truly human. The Apostle John made clear that this is bare minimum knowledge. 1 John chapter 4, verse 2, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Notice the two truths communicated in that sentence. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, has come in the flesh, had an existence before He came, you see, but He has come in the flesh. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Second John, the seventh verse says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Many deceivers in the world, and one thing many deceivers have in common is they refuse to confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Or as John wrote at the beginning of his gospel account, John chapter 1, verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So these are two non-negotiables when it comes to saving faith. You understand that Jesus is the Son of God. You understand that Jesus is the Son of Man. You understand that in Jesus of Nazareth, you have God incarnate. This is who the true Jesus is. But there's a third bare minimum element of knowledge that is present in saving faith. That is, to be saved, 
I must understand that that Jesus did everything necessary to save men. That He lived and He died and He was raised to provide everything necessary for our salvation so that salvation is by grace alone. It is through faith alone and it is in Christ alone. We are not saved by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to God's mercy. Titus chapter 3 verse 5. And that mercy is found in the Savior Himself. If you have Christ, you have life. If you don't have Christ, you don't have life. So that everything necessary to save people like us, Jesus did it. He accomplished it. His death paid for our sins if we trust in Him. His righteousness answers for our acceptance with God if we put our faith in Him. The forgiveness we needed, Jesus provided by His death. Acceptance we needed, Jesus provides as God gifts to us the very righteousness of His Son the moment we trust in His Son. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1 says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Circumcision, sort of shorthand, for an approach to salvation that says, I must save myself by means of the law of God. I must keep the law of God to be saved. Circumcision, one of the elements of that obedience necessary to salvation if you adopted that mindset as an unbelieving Jew. I mean, trying to add the law to faith in Jesus. Yes, you must believe in Jesus, but then you must keep the law. And Paul is saying, no, listen, as soon as you add one additional element to the sufficiency of Christ's finished work, you have nullified Christ. Now you must save yourself. Verse 3, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You have severed, you are severed, he says, from Christ. You have cut yourself off from the grace of God in His Son. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law... You have fallen away from grace. You have moved yourself away from what grace really is, you see. You can't be saved by grace and by your works. You'll either be saved by grace, or you'll attempt to be saved by your works, in which case you will not be saved. Take away any of these three elements. Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus, the Son of Man. Jesus, the Savior and you are still lost and in your sins. A partial Jesus, a false Jesus, whether it's false in terms of His person or false in terms of His mission, will never save you. So that there's nothing more merciful that God can do for a sinner than to bring a sinner face to face with the knowledge that you have an insufficient view of the Son of God. If indeed you have a view of Jesus that is not adequate, if you have a view of Jesus that, that doesn't embrace these three elements, the most loving, merciful, kind thing that God could ever do for you is bring you face to face with the fact that your knowledge of Jesus is insufficient. 
in which case he is offering you the opportunity to abandon your false Jesus and embrace the true Jesus. And that's what Jesus is doing in our verses this morning, verses 41 through 46. They have been peppering Jesus with questions. And now when you come to verse 41 through 46, it is Jesus who's asking the questions. He has moved from being questioned to being the questioner. And when you look at his questions, what is clear is that Jesus is bringing these men who've sought to entrap him, bringing them face to face with the fact that their views of Messiah are inadequate. The Messiah they've been looking for, the Messiah they've been believing in, the Messiah they've been willing to accept is not the Messiah who is real, not the Messiah who will save. He, he, is, he is the figment of mythology. He is the figment of their imagination. He is the figment of tradition, but He doesn't exist. He's not real. Jesus is truly the Messiah. But they're not able to, to accept that because they have a false Christ that they've been holding on to. We'll see this this morning under four headings. Maybe someone's listening to me this morning in this room that you call yourself a Christian, you say that you are on your way to heaven, but in truth you are still in your sins because your Jesus is not the Jesus of the Bible. If that's you, may the Lord open your eyes today and have mercy upon you as He brings you face to face with your inadequate views of Christ. The first thing we see is a diagnostic question. A diagnostic question, verse 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? So I mentioned they, they've asked him three questions, each one intended to entrap him. In each case, the wisdom of Jesus was insurmountable. He demonstrated his identity and his authority by his wisdom because they could not conquer him. I mean, he turned away with ease their attacks and he exposed at the same time their lack of understanding of the Word of God, their lack of genuine faith. But now he asks the question, a question designed to expose their inadequate views of the Messiah. What is your conception of the Messiah? This is a general question. You'll notice Jesus does not make this about Himself. He doesn't say, what do you think about Me? He says, what do you think about the Christ? Let's talk about the Messiah in general terms. Whose Son is the Messiah? From whom, here's what Jesus is asking them, from whom will the Messiah descend? That's the question. Now, they would have considered this to be a very elementary question because everybody knew, talking now about the Jewish people, they all knew about the Davidic covenant. Everyone knew about the promises that God had made to David concerning one of his offspring who would sit on his throne forever. So they knew that the Messiah would be one of David's descendants. They also knew, because they're still looking for Messiah, they knew that Solomon did not fulfill the fullness of what God had promised. 
God had made statements that did refer to Solomon. God had made statements that referred to others who would follow after Solomon, but none of those statements fully spoke of the one who would come, who would be the Messiah, who would be the Christ, who would be God's chosen one, the anointed one, who would rule forever. 2 Samuel chapter 7 is where you find this promise. Verse 8, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will dis discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. The fullness of that promise required someone greater than Solomon. And as I said, these religious leaders understood that. They're still looking for Messiah. And they understood that God had made a promise to David. Whose son will he be? They go on to answer. We'll see this in a moment. Verse 42, the son of David. They understood the answer to the question at that level. Later on, this is called a covenant. 2 Samuel 23 now these are the last words of David, the oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. For does not my house stand so with God? For He has made with me an everlasting covenant ordered in all things and secure. For, he, for will He not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? David speaking of the promises that God had made to him concerning his house, Concerning this offspring of his, he calls it a covenant that God had made with him. Psalm 89 speaks of this as a covenant. Psalm 89 verse 3, you have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations, Selah. The prophets predicted that the Messiah would come from David, but be greater than David, David's greater son. Many examples I could offer, but let me just give you one from the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel 37 verse 21 says this, Then say to them, Thus says the Lord God, 
Behold, I will take the people of Israel from the nations among which they have gone, and will gather them from all around and bring them to their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king over them all. And they shall be no longer two nations and no longer divided into two kingdoms. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions. Of course, all this happens post-Solomon, the division of the kingdom and all the rest. But I will save them from all their all the backslidings in which they have sinned and will cleanse them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. My servant David shall be king over them and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever and David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. Pharisees knew this. So Jesus asked them a question that they would have considered to be very elementary. What do you think about the Christ, the Messiah? Whose son is he? Jesus knows they will give him the right answer. And they do. Here's our second point this morning. You see a diagnostic question. Second, notice the confident answer, verse 42. They said to him, the son of David. And that is perfectly true, isn't it? The Messiah would be a descendant of David. Now Jesus, as I mentioned, did not make this about himself, but the Pharisees knew that John the Baptist had pointed to Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah. They knew that Jesus had just made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem in a way that spoke of him as the Messiah. They knew that the crowds had cried out all sorts of celebration that celebrated Him as the Messiah, calling Him the Son of David. In fact, they wanted Jesus to stop it, if you'll remember. The children crying out, and they wanted Jesus to put a stop to it, and Jesus refused to put a stop to it because the words were accurate. God was putting the truth in the mouths of babes. So they, they knew what was being claimed about Jesus isn't it interesting, however, that in all their opposition to Jesus, they never made this the point of their opposition. They said to Him, the Son of David. Now they're opposed to Jesus, but they give the right answer. The Messiah will be a descendant of David. Yet they never challenged Jesus on that point, did they? Did they ever challenge that Jesus, Jesus, you're not the Messiah because you're not a son of David. Never said that. Why? Because they knew that Jesus of Nazareth was a descendant of David. In fact, as Matthew opens his gospel account, what does he do in the very first chapter? He gives the genealogy of Jesus and demonstrates that Jesus, his lineage can be traced back to David. He is a son of David. John MacArthur comments, until the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70, meticulous genealogical records of all Jews were kept there. That information not only was essential to establish Levitical and priestly lineage for the men as well as their wives, but for many other purposes as well. No one could hold a position of responsibility in Israel whose genealogy was unverified. It is therefore certain that the authorities had carefully checked Jesus' genealogy and discovered that his, his descent from David was legitimate. Otherwise, they would simply have exposed him as having no claim to Davidic heritage 
and all discussion about his possible messiahship would have ended. I mean, all you had to do to put him out of business, so to speak, to kill his influence is to demonstrate he wasn't really a son of David. But they never did that. So we got to ask a question, don't we? If the problem is not that he can be traced to David, and if you can't deny the miracles of Jesus, and they never could, even in their accusations, we're going to get eventually here soon to his trials, they never claimed that his miracles were frauds. So you can't deny his Davidic lineage. You can't deny his miracles. Why don't you accept him? Why don't you just acknowledge he's the Messiah? What emerges, as you know, as you study the gospel accounts, and as you study the history of the time, the problem is these men thought of the Messiah as just a man. They're not looking for the Son of God. They're looking for a son of David, chosen by God from their vantage point, chosen by God to serve as a political, military-like leader who will deliver them from the yoke of Rome and usher them into a new golden age for Israel. This is what they're looking for. Or we can state it this way, they're looking for a Messiah like them. They believe that when He came... He would take up their cause. He would affirm their leadership. They would just simply join him in what he was going to usher in. So so he's going to affirm their system of religion. He's going to affirm their traditions. He's going to affirm their influence. It's going to be a great day when he arrives and ushers in what we've been aiming at, what we've been longing for, political Deliverance from Rome, the highest place in all the kingdoms of the earth with the Messiah leading the leaders of Israel. Or to say it another way, they're looking for a false Messiah. They're looking for a false Christ. They're looking for another another Jesus. So they give him the answer, son of David. Now you see a probing follow-up, verse 43, a probing follow-up. He said to them, then how does David in the Spirit call him Lord? Let me just say this. What Christ is doing in verse 43 is not questioning their assessment that he'll be the son of David. What he's doing is saying, you only have a partial part of the answer. You got the son of David part right, but here's what you're missing, verse 43. Then how does David in the Spirit call him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. Therefore, if David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Christ's question has to do with Psalm 110, verse 1. The 110th Psalm is the most quoted, most alluded to Psalm in all the New Testament. New Testament writers go to Psalm 110 again and again and again. James Montgomery Boyce believes there are 27 quotations or allusions in the New Testament to Psalm 110. Listen to what he says. By my count, Psalm 110, verse 1 
is cited directly or alluded to indirectly at least 27 times. The chief passages being Matthew 22:44, parallel accounts Mark 12:36, Luke 20, Acts 2, Acts 7, 1 Corinthians 15, Ephesians 1, Colossians 3, Hebrews 1, verse 3, verse 13, Hebrews 12, verse 2, 1 Peter 3:22, verse 4 of Psalm 110, in which Jesus is called a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek is referred to in Hebrews 5, 6, 7, 17, 7, 21, chapter 8, verse 1, chapter 10, verse 11 through 13, and is the dominating idea in those chapters. Then Boyce asks this, why was Psalm 110 so important to the New Testament writers and to the church? Because Psalm 110 is the greatest and clearest of the Messianic Psalms. And, by the way, the Pharisees also would have acknowledged that. How do we know David wrote Psalm 110, the superscription? They didn't deny the Davidic authorship of Psalm 110. Jesus says that David is talking about the Messiah in Psalm 110, and they don't take any issue with that. They believe that also. They believe this is a Psalm of David, and they believe that the Psalm is speaking of the Messiah, just as Jesus says. So if you acknowledge that, that this is a psalm of David and he's speaking of the Messiah in Psalm 110, then Jesus has a question for you. How is it if he's David's son, David's offspring, the Messiah who is coming is David's son, what kind of man is he that David would call him Lord? And Jesus says he does this in the Spirit. David, as we heard in our scripture reading this morning, David, writing as a prophet, by the Spirit, under inspiration, calls the Messiah Lord. By the way, if you go to Psalm 110, verse 1, just look there real quickly. We'll come right back here. Go to the 110th Psalm. Look at verse 1. The Legacy Standard Bible brings out what is obvious in your copy of God's Word as well. If if Lord is all capitalized first, and then you have capitalized but lowercase after that, Yahweh, Yahweh says to my Adonai. Yahweh says to my, David writes, my Lord. Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies as a footstool for your feet. Yahweh is speaking to David's Adonai. So you have two persons, both being referred to with the language of deity. Yahweh says of David's Adonai, speaking to it, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Two persons referred to in the language of deity. Psalm 8 illustrates this, that these are both, one is the name of God, one is a title for God. Psalm 8, verse 1, Psalm of David, O Yahweh our Adonai, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heaven. Yahweh is our Adonai, but here Yahweh is speaking to David's Adonai. In Psalm 8, the same person. In Psalm 110, two different persons. How does David call his offspring, the Messiah, his Adonai? If he calls him his Lord, how is he his son? 
And the answer, of course, is, well, because this is no ordinary son. The Messiah will be the Son of God come to earth, born of a virgin, taking to Himself an additional nature, a true human nature, so that He's both the Son of David according to His human nature, but the Son of God according to the fact that He is eternally the Son of God, always has been God. He will be David's son, yet David's Lord. This is the full view, the accurate view, the adequate view of the Messiah. This is non-negotiable. This is bare minimum knowledge. If you're going to be saved, you must see who Jesus really is. Romans chapter 1, verse 1, Paul writes, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which He promised beforehand through His prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning His Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. That, there it is. That's the adequate view of Jesus. By the way, Psalm 110 actually reveals that, doesn't it? Because Yahweh is saying to Adonai, sit at my right hand. A place of having been sat down in equality with the Father. A place of authority, a place of ruling and reigning with the Father, but awaiting a time when all of His enemies who are already conquered, but their defeat will be fully manifested until all of His enemies are put under His feet. What does this require? But what was revealed in our Scripture reading this morning, preached about on the day of Pentecost, that this Messiah died for our sins, but then was raised from the dead bodily, has ascended into heaven, has sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high, and is coming again, and will usher in His kingdom... And all of His enemies will be put under His feet when He comes from heaven to earth to rule and reign on the throne of His father, David. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, Paul writes, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. See, this is something that you don't leave out of gospel preaching. The true human nature of Jesus of Nazareth Yet He is, was, has always been, and is the Son of God. God in human flesh. What is Jesus doing in our verses? He is telling these religious leaders, yet again, your view of the Messiah is wrong. Obviously, their rejection of Jesus is fueled by their sinfulness. Obviously. They are God-haters, therefore they are haters of Him. If you love God, you would love Him. They don't love Jesus, so they're haters of God. This is true, but what is at work in their sinful lusts is also a refusal to see what the Scriptures revealed about the Messiah. They have an insufficient, inadequate view of the Messiah, and Jesus is making this plain. Your view of the Messiah is a damning view because it's an insufficient view and your insufficient view is an inexcusable view because the Word of God has made this plain. 
All I'm doing is bringing you a verse from Psalm 110, which you would acknowledge to be messianic in terms of what it reveals, and yet you can't answer this question. How is he the son of David, yet David calls him his Lord? Your ignorance is inexcusable. And in this, Jesus is calling upon them to recognize, though he's never mentioned his own name, Jesus is calling upon them to recognize what they're meeting with in him. How do you explain not just the fact he can trace his lineage to David, but, but now all these miracles, all that he does in their sight that they can't deny? How do you, how do you interpret his humanity in light of all of these evidences of deity. And if you read Psalm 110 rightly, verse 1, you'll come face to face with who's speaking to you, who's questioning you, who's probing your understanding. Why can't you conquer His wisdom? Why do you ask Him to demonstrate by what authority He does this? And then He goes on to demonstrate it in multiple ways that you can't overcome. Why is He so insurmountable? Why is he presented enough evidence that if you don't stop him, everyone's going to believe in him? Because he is the Son of God and the Son of David. Which brings us to our fourth point, and that is an exposing silence. An exposing silence. Verse 46, And no one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. How would they respond to Christ's biblical point? How would they respond to David's psalm? Answer? Silence. They would give no answer. They don't respond with repentance. They don't respond with questions that would seek answers. I mean, he raised the question... If I don't know the answer, wouldn't it make sense to say, teacher, how does he do that? But they don't ask the question. They're not seeking for answers. They're not willing to, to recognize, you see, the, the very one who fulfills exactly what David spoke of. They don't want Jesus to be the Messiah. He's not the Messiah they wanted who would join them in their cause and fulfill their ambitions. Why do so many people in our day run to all the false Jesuses? Because the false Jesuses represent what they already want. The false Jesuses simply join their cause to get them what they have wanted in their unregenerate lost condition. You simply add a Jesus to the equation that eases your conscience, gives you some sort of false hope, helps you along the journey you've been on your whole life. Your false Jesus doesn't require your humility, doesn't require your repentance, doesn't require your acknowledgement you're lost, doesn't require a radical change of heart that you can't produce yourself, doesn't require losing your life to have life so that 
men and women who go on embracing their false Jesuses don't want to ever believe that their Jesus is false. And that the one they need, if you just read the Bible, doesn't match their Jesus. So let me ask you, do you have the real Jesus? A false Jesus will never save you. A partial Jesus will never save you. If you get his person wrong, son of God, son of man, son of God, son of David, you get his person wrong, he can't save you because he's not real. You get his mission wrong. Did he come to be your life coach? Or did he come to give you new life? Did he come to ease your conscience? Or did he come to shed his blood to pay for all your sins? Did he come to make good people better people? Or did he come to save those of whom it could be said, there's none good, not even one. And does he save by God giving to you as a gift his very righteousness so that you're forgiven by his death and accepted by his goodness, not yours? Do you have a Jesus whom you embrace by faith alone? It's not Jesus plus you. It's not Jesus plus your efforts. It's not Jesus plus your works. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. If Jesus saves sinners, I am saved because I've put my faith in the Son of God. If Jesus doesn't save sinners all by Himself, then I'm lost because all my hope is in Him. Amen? Do you have that Jesus? Do you have a Jesus who didn't come to forgive you of all your sins then just leave you like you are? Do you have the Jesus who came to be not just your Savior, but your Lord and God, as Thomas confessed Him to be? As David confessed Him to be, my Lord. Do you have the Jesus who takes over one's life, to whom you lose your life to have His life? Is your Jesus the treasure hidden in the field? Is your Jesus the pearl of great price? Is your Jesus the one whom you take up your cross and you follow Him? Is that your Jesus? Or the Jesus who leaves you comfortable living life on your terms in the realm of religion? Do you have the real Jesus? Because I promise you on the authority of God's holy word, any other Jesus will never save you from the wrath of God. And you die having put your faith in a false Jesus, you will perish forever. Where is Jesus right now? He was raised from the dead. He's ascended into heaven. He sits right now at the right hand of the majesty on high. And He is coming again. The same Jesus is coming again. And all of the enemies of God that have already been conquered by His life and death and resurrection will be fully manifested as conquered when He comes again and ushers in His kingdom and fulfills all the promises made to David, the one of whom David wrote, when he sits on the throne of his father David forever. Do you have that Jesus? If you do, rejoice. Your sins are forgiven. Rejoice. You are completely accepted by God in the Beloved. Rejoice. Your future is secure. Rejoice in the midst of a world of chaos due to sin. He's your rock and your redeemer.
Rejoice because you have eternal life and no one can take you out of His hand or His Father's hand. Rejoice because flesh and blood didn't reveal it to you. But your Father, Christ's Father in heaven, is the one who revealed it to you. Just as surely as Peter made a confession because of God's revelation, you made a confession because of God's revelation. As He worked through the preaching of the Gospel in your soul, giving you light, saying, let there be light. And you saw Jesus for who He is because God had mercy upon your poor soul. Rejoice that you confess the biblical Christ. But if not, turn from your way, your sins, your mind to Jesus and live. He will save you if you turn to Him. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank You for Your holy word. Thank You for the beauty of picture after picture after picture of the truth of Your Son. Open eyes this day to see these things in a way that goes beyond physical vision. Drive these truths deep into our hearts so that we embrace them and live out of them every day. Thank You, Lord, for Your mercy upon us in Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.